guys. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Ragnar Leafbracer. Ragnar is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Guns and Bitcoin. So their first product is a firearm case that allows you to carry your firearm and your hardware wallet in the same place. Um, and it's specifically designed to accommodate those two items. So I, I really wanted to speak with Ragnar uh, because of the attention that the gun debate is receiving these days. It's obviously very emotionally charged, passionate groups on both sides of the aisle arguing their case. And obviously there's been uh, you know, a number of very public tragedies in recent years. And I thought Ragnar would be a good person to have this discussion with. He's very vocal about his support for firearms on Twitter. He's gotten into a few spats with people, but I just thought, you know, I've been wanting to have this conversation. I've been wanting to share my opinion on it and help and get someone to help me refine it. I thought Ragnar would be a good person to do that. I have found that my stance on guns has changed pretty dramatically over the last decade. Um, and so we do get into that and much more in this discussion. And hopefully it will provide some clarity um, or some food for thought for people on both sides, either gun supporters um, or people that don't currently support guns, just to provide another perspective and some logic and reason around why Ragnar and many other people feel the way they feel about guns. I just want to make one further point, um, and I don't say this to be sensationalist whatsoever, but this interview was recorded prior to the publishing of another interview that Ragnar did with Peter McCormick on the What Bitcoin Did podcast. Phenomenal interview, really great discussion. I highly recommend you check it out. But in that, Ragnar revealed that his father took his own life with a firearm. And uh, I just say that because I think it's really important context to consider when listening to his um, perspective on guns, you know, so that the audience is aware that he's not somebody that takes this issue lightly. He's not somebody coming from a privileged circumstance of not ever having experienced gun violence. You know, he's fully aware of the drawbacks and the downsides of firearms. And yet he has the perspective and stance that he does. So uh, I just thought that was um, important context to consider prior to listening to this conversation. I assume that because he shared it with, uh, with Peter, he won't mind my sharing it here. Of course, this is the further discussion episode where we take about an hour to just have a general conversation. If you'd like to hear the rapid fire portion where I asked Ragnar the standard set of questions and then some word associations at the end, that rapid fire episode is available now as well. You can just go to your podcast app and download it there. Anyways, that's it. I hope you enjoy. Let's do it. So Ragnar, thanks for uh, for taking the time to uh, to join me on this podcast. I I've I came across you on Twitter as I you know we all Twitter is this big orgy of coming across different people in the space, and so I came across you a while back and. You know, guns is one of those topics that is inexorably linked to Bitcoin, but it's also, it's not without controversy, let's say. And I actually, in the rapid fire portion of this podcast, at the end, I do a word association and I'll do it with you. And one of the words that I've included in that is guns. Um, and cause, because I want to get people's kind of reflexive reaction to that word. Um, and just before I get you to, to break into kind of what you're doing, it is interesting that everyone I've, I've asked a question to so far has said, you know, something like important or security or what have you. So it's a bit of a disparity from the mainstream view. But I know there are still people within the community that um, 
that are unsure of or have differing opinions on guns. So I do want to break into that um, as we go along. But first, maybe you can just start with one, how and when you got into Bitcoin, and two, uh, how, when, and why um, you got started with guns and Bitcoin. Sure. I got started in Bitcoin in 2011 when I read about it on the anarcho-capitalism subreddit. And uh, so it was an interest in philosophy at that time. And then also I had a small construction and renovation business and I accepted PayPal. And one day PayPal closed my account, didn't say why, told me I need a subpoena to find out. And I was kind of cut off from being able to uh, pay my guys and and get paid. So kind of the philosophy and the real world experience uh, pushed me into Bitcoin, I guess. And in terms of- Did you ever find out why they they, they cut you off? No, I would need some sort of legal action to find out. And I talked to an attorney and he just said, well, you know, you could pay me a lot of money, you'll find (sighs) out and you still won't get back on PayPal. Wow. So, yeah. Um, Guns and Bitcoin. I co-founded Guns and Bitcoin last year and we do a couple of things. We have a podcast and we have gear relating to protecting your Bitcoin and protecting your guns and kind of vice versa. And so the, the, what was kind of the genesis of that? I, I've heard you on, on other podcasts and you, you, know, you grew up around guns, uh, you know, shooting with your father and, and stuff like that. But what, you know, what was the motivation behind starting Guns and Bitcoin? Um, starting Guns and Bitcoin came from a few things. First, it was, I guess in a way by accident, I was trying to make a case to hold my hardware wallets. So before I would keep them in my sock drawer and at my desk and in a backpack. And uh, I just figured out that wasn't very smart. So I <laughs> took I, I took one of my uh, existing gun cases and try to cut out s- some of the foam to place my uh, hardware wallets in there, but it, it didn't work. And then I kind of looked around, didn't see anything on the market. So I kind of made one myself, but I didn't really like it and um, started looking into a custom case. And then as I, you know, developed that, I realized, well, there's probably more guys like me out there who want to protect their hardware wallets, who are into guns, or at least would appreciate, um, you know, the, the, the product. So just went ahead and made it and then turned it into guns and Bitcoin from there. But in terms of like the idea, like the general philosophy, it started more like in 2017. That was during the summer of, of SegWit and segregated witness activation. And um, it started when someone posted a picture of, I think it was a, someone posted a picture of one of their semi-automatic rifles with their hardware wallet. And I had done something similar and I just started to kind of collect these and more people started to post these pictures of their guns with their hardware wallets. And I turned it into a Twitter moment. And again, this is back in 2017. So that's, that's as far back as I was thinking along those lines. And then when I created this case, then I guess it all came together, the kind of the, the products and the idea. Right. And has there been, you know, good uptake from the community, people appreciating a product where they can basically, you know, have their financial sovereignty and their physical sovereignty in the same place and obviously the physical protecting the financial. And has there been good responses? There's been the response that I expected, which is there's the people who get it and really appreciate it. They're super enthusiastic. And then there's these other people that don't understand it at all. They think it's stupid. You know, they just, they're just not gun people, so they don't understand it. So it's exactly as I expected. 
Right. All right. Well, let's let's break into that then, because this, you know, I, I've been wanting to have this conversation for a while, and you're probably one of the best uh, to have it with, given you know the project and business that you're currently working on. But there's so much contentious rhetoric around the gun issue these days. You know, whether it's on Twitter, it's being played out in the in the Democratic presidential uh, you know candidate race uh, at the moment, um, and so. Maybe before I, I give you kind of my story and take what, I mean, what's your opinion on the role guns play in society and, and your, your take on, on the kind of social dialogue on the subject these days? Um, for me, the first human right is the right to defend your life and the right to defend your family and your property. So to me, gun gun ownership and usage is a human right. I think it's more important than the right to free speech. I think the second amendment should have been the very first amendment because if you're dead, you can't exercise free speech and you can't vote and you can't get healthcare or do anything else. So to me, guns is a tool of the first human right that exists. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You know, what, what do you make of, uh, you know, I think it was Beto O'Rourke. I saw a funny, um, video of him on Twitter the other day and when he was running for, I guess, the Senate in, in Texas or whatever position he held in Texas, you know, he was in response to a question, he was saying, no, of course, I'm not going to take away your guns. Guns are very important, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, a few days ago in the Democratic presidential race, he's saying, yes, we're, we're going to confiscate or take your AR-15s and your guns and stuff like that. I mean, when you hear that kind of stuff, as someone who's grown up around them and who feels so strongly about the role they play in 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 one's life and with regards to freedom, how do you feel about those kinds of statements? Well, at at first I laugh because he, he, Beto is such a joke, and I even tweeted to him that he couldn't even take a parking spot for my mom. So he's, de- <laughs> he's, he's definitely not going to be taking uh, any of my guns anytime soon. So that's my first response is this is a joke. These politicians are idiots. But on the other hand, I do take it seriously because my opinion is that gun control is only going to get worse. It's not going to get better. If you look at the demographics of the country, of the voters, um, the best days of, of the Second Amendment, I think, are behind us in terms of legislation. And I think the rest of the U.S. is going to go the way of New York and California. So in that way, I'm very pessimistic. But um, on the other hand, I think we will actually overcome that with 3D gun printing and some other things that will come out. Mm-hmm. So I, I laugh, but I also it's a sobering thing when he says that because it, it is coming. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot of, well, I mean, I guess it depends which kind of echo chamber you're in politically. There's a lot of, you know, staunch supporters on the right, I guess you would say, and there's a lot of uh, critics on the left. And, you know, these, these, these horrific and tragic, you know, shootings that occur uh, in in the U.S. are obviously terrible. and, And they, they, they point the conversation towards uh, guns. Um, but I mean, like when, when those things occur and the rhetoric that, that appears on the media afterwards, you know, I'm, I'm sure we all kind of have an opinion on, on what gets kind of trotted out after that. What, what, what's your approach when these, you know, these tragedies occur? Like what, what's your opinion on them? Well, 
My opinion is two things. First, I'm more interested in solving the real problem, and I'm more interested in actually reducing the violence that happens. And that means we have to solve the root problem, which is the breakdown of the family. The number one predictor of violent crime is the lack of a father in the home. This has been proven for decades across multiple studies. It's the most powerful predictor of violence. It's not the number of guns in the home. It's nothing else. That is it. The second thing is mental health. That's the second predictor of violence. So the real cause of all this is the families and mental health issues in the US. Mm -hmm. So that's my approach. I actually care. So when I hear people uh, manipulating these tragedies for their political ends, it's quite sickening because they're really not interested in reducing the violence. They're interested in disarming, Mm -hmm. period. End of discussion. If they cared about reducing these deaths, they would talk about the importance of of a father in the home. They would support measures that would give father good rights. They would support things that um, make marriage, you know, more desirable, that that just generally would support things that support the family. And they would also support better health care, better mental health initiatives. But because you don't see them talking about any of that, that tells you right there what their motives are. And that's just disarming people and getting um, the control of people that they don't like. And it's it's right. really terrible because I have very personal experience with violence using guns and also uh, experience with people who have mental illness. So I'm, I know this very, very well, and I've worked on solving both. So I'm pretty passionate about it and it's just too bad that people politicize it. Right. And I'm not sure, I'm not aware of the figures, but just to extend, you know, this, this tract a little bit, are you aware or familiar if, you know, the quote unquote breakdown of the family or the, the, the percentage of, you know, single mothers or absentee fathers or whatever we want to call that. Is that higher in the U.S. than other developed countries? Well, it does break down to some ethnicities, but what we do know is that it has gotten worse over time. So when you look at the statistics, there's kind of this parallel between the breakdown of the family and violence, and it really tracks with certain groups. Okay. So I don't know the exact numbers, but to answer your question, um, yes, it does track with the breakdown of the family and with violence. And you can see that at the macro and micro level, you could see it at certain, I mean, if you look at the research, they, what they do is they, they take all these factors, you know, age and um, your social economic status and all these things you could think of your geography. And the one thing that keeps coming back is the presence of a father in the home. And if you don't have a father in the home, the odds go way up of violent crime. If you have a strong father figure, the odds go way down. And that's across every other factor. Mm -hmm. And if we accept, you know, that to be the case, and I've I've seen a lot of that data as well. um, What do you think is, what what do we attribute this current, landscape this current dynamic in which there are you know in which that that scenario is so prevalent like what about modern society is is inspiring or creating that dynamic in your mind well i think it, nietzsche predicted it 
when he said that, you know, God is dead, we killed him. And uh, I, I can't quote Nietzsche very well, but basically he predicted that the nihilism that would result from the death of established religions would lead to this sort of thing, where life is meaningless, um, ethics are all relative. And he was right. I mean, that's what happened. Look at World War I, World War II. So it's just uh, modernity. Let me say that again. It's just uh, our modern, <laughs> it's our modern, it's our modern age that we live in of meaninglessness, of a lack of a family. We live in a, just a vapid, meaningless culture. Yeah. And if, if we, if we accept that premise that, you know, the, the kind of quote unquote death of religion has left a lot of people kind of in a, in a spiritual or metaphysical no man's land in which, you know, if any, if anything kind of assumes the, the apex of that hierarchy, I mean, you could probably make a pretty good argument that it's the state. If it's not a, a higher, you know, spiritual power, then the next highest power is your kings or your presidents or your state apparatus and that sort of thing. And I guess one of the, the points of religion is that the, um, you know, the central figure or ideas of those religions provide an ideal that people can strive for in their lives and then kind of bring down that ideal and try to express it and act it out in their lives. And, you know, that's, there's a, there's benefit to be derived there. If it is then supplanted or replaced by something like a state apparatus, then perhaps unknowingly, subconsciously, the, the behavior is the same. Um, and, but it's a, it's a far different ideal, right? The, the ideals of the state are very different than the ideals of, of, you know, the, the core ideas of, of the world's religion. So do you think that is somewhat what's at play and that people are kind of reflecting the power apparatus of the state and that's causing a lot of this perversion of behavior? Yeah, absolutely. The state has become our God. There's no doubt about it. Statism is a religion. If you take a step back and say, what is religion? Well, it's ethics, it's power, it's tradition, it's authority, it's heretics, things like that. It's clear the state has replaced um, God. And as we know, the state is an awful thing. And so yeah, look at the state. It's replaced the family. The state has replaced the family for, you know, financial support, for telling you what's right and wrong, for so many things. And so we don't need to debate about is there a God? Is there not? Is it Christianity? Is it Islam? Like, that's not what it's about. It's about having these traditions and structures and, and beliefs that keep families intact, that allow people to have some meaning in their life. And that's been replaced by the state, which is this horrible, meaningless monster of bureaucracy. So, yeah, so, yeah absolutely. The state, the state has a huge role to play in, in the breakdown of, of the family and mental health. And is this, you know, one of the things that drew you to Bitcoin originally? Because it's this kind of this phenomenon, this network that has the ability to disrupt or displace the thing that gives the state apparatus its power, i.e. the control of the issuance and direction of the money supply. Yeah, in a way it, it, it did. I mean, I grew up in a, 
traditional conservative home. So we were generally anti-government or at least small government. And then through my own kind of reading and life experiences, I really came to the realization um, just how awful the state is. And so between that and seeing that Bitcoin offered this great alternative to it, and then just seeing what it did for me personally on a very concrete level, then to me, to me, Bitcoin was uh, sort of a lifeline out of the state and the mess that a lot of things, um, just a lifeline out of the mess of a lot of things, I would say. Right. Because, you know, as we were talking about a few minutes ago about kind of if the state has replaced that kind of, um, you know, that ideal that draws people forward in their in their lives or from which they borrow certain truths or ideals and try to reflect them in their lives. If the state has replaced that sort of thing, then all of its, you know, all of its nastiness and, and perversion of behavior and, 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 you know, power and corruption, et cetera, those are the attributes that may get expressed through people's lives. And I think we're all on the same page here with Bitcoin in that it has a chance, and this is probably why we're all engaging in it, to take the reins of power from that apparatus. And if not dismantle it entirely, certainly provide a greater check and balance uh, against the people that are, you know, that are proposing to act on our behalf and tr- ha- help us structure society for the benefit of all, right? I have sort of a strange view on Bitcoin, I think, compared at least compared to a lot of other people who really have strong feelings about Bitcoin. So on one hand, I feel that Bitcoin really can arm you against the state on an individual level, but I'm very skeptical that it will otherwise eliminate it meaningfully. I think the state's going to be around for a very long time, um, no matter how well Bitcoin does. And with that being said, I think a lot of Bitcoiners overestimate the power of Bitcoin, broadly speaking, of what it can do to the state. Um, I think what a lot of Bitcoiners are missing is the importance of the, you know, a community. And I don't mean that in like the Twitter Bitcoin community. I mean that in a real sense, like your family, your neighbors, people that you work with, help out, eat dinner with, people like that. And just a, a, a larger sense of civilization and building a civilization on an individual level. Yes, you can opt out of certain constraints of the state, but on a general societal level, I don't really think it's going to alter the state that much. And I just don't think Bitcoin is going to have mass adoption, at least for several decades. And even if it does, the government, the government will figure out a way to tax it anyways. That's interesting. That's interesting. And I get what what I was going to ask is, is, how could the state apparatus maintain its size, power, and, if, and influence if it was financially and monetarily restrained you know, via something like Bitcoin? But you answered it by saying you don't think it's going to reach um, mass adoption for several decades. You know, because if, if it does, then it's hard to imagine that you, know, you could have these overspending, overreaching you know, governments if, if, they were, if they didn't have an endless piggy bank, right? Yeah. So I look at it in terms of taxes, of course. So if the government can collect taxes, then it can pay for itself. It can exist. And so if you understand that Bitcoin is is cash, it's, it's digital cash. Well, the government has been able to tax cash. So if you were paid in Bitcoin, let's say you're, you're an attorney 
and your firm pays you right now, well, you, you automatically already t- get your taxes taken out for that ahead of time before you actually kind of get paid in a way or at each paycheck. And mm-hmm. so if you're paid in Bitcoin, the government would just say, hey, you know, you need to give us your 15% income tax for this paycheck. It's in Bitcoin. Well, great. Send it to us in Bitcoin or send it to us in dollars either way. So you're, most people are employees. Right. And so companies are going to collect their taxes. People will pay their taxes. So again, I, I don't think it, you could really, Bitcoin's going to get around that a lot with the state, but for certain individuals who are smart, what they do, and then maybe can move to certain jurisdictions, then yeah, sure. I think you can uh, get away from the state in at more of an individual family level. Right. But there's, there's two things about that, right? One is the tax revenue is only at this stage of a portion of, of government revenue, right? They rely on, on borrowing and, you know, the issuance of, of new money, effectively new debt to finance a lot of their activities. So at the very least, if they were restricted to only tax revenue, then you'd have to imagine that it would shrink substantially just because they have a, you know, a smaller uh, honeypot from which to draw and, and carry out their activities. And then the second thing is, you know, you're, you're, I take your, your tax point, um, and you know, not that I'm advocating this, but in a in a world where there is increasing privacy, monetary and financial privacy, there will probably be lots of ways that emerge to you know conceal financial transactions away from, let's say, state spying eyes. And you know that that I, I can easily see a scenario in which that becomes highly sophisticated and making it even harder for a, you know a state apparatus to you know collect revenue in that way. Well, of course, it's ideally that would happen, but the the current reality is that ninety nine percent of people get their Bitcoin on an exchange, right? You know, Coinbase, a Cash App, a Kraken, whatever it is, and those are all the the state has their thumb on those guys. They have to collect that information, and you've got to give it to them. So yeah. if if Bitcoin was completely anonymous and untraceable and private, it still wouldn't matter because the exchanges and Coinbase's of the world would just give the government that information anyways. Right. And um, and if you say, oh, ha ha, I lost my private keys, that's fine. They'll just throw you in jail for contempt of court. Right. Yeah. So th- these are some of the, the the big issues that I think we'll see emerging over the next 10 years around Bitcoin and whether, and, and you know, what I, what I love about this community is that it is a solutions-based community. So as an, a problem emerges, as, a, as an attack vector emerges, I do think a lot, you know, as this community grows, a lot of motivated people are, are going to try to build solutions. But it, of course, it's going to be a tug of war back and forth, you know, because this is, you know, the state is the biggest power apparatus that there is, and they are not going to relinquish easily without a fight their main source of their power, you know? So it's going to be... Uh, you know, it's not always going to be fun and games in, in this, uh, re- this revolution. Yeah, I absolutely. And I think something that Bitcoiners again, miss, and I kind of mentioned this before, but not in detail is you actually can get away from the state a little bit and you don't even need money to do it. Um, kind of one example is the Muslim communities in Europe, especially in the UK where you have entire neighborhoods of Muslims and they have their own society. They pretty much have their own courts, even their own police to a, to a certain extent. Obviously they have their own, you know, economy and restaurants and everything else, but they're kind of left alone. Um, 
and they're able to, to do that because they're so united and they're so intolerant of everything else. And they're so forceful with it that they actually are semi-sovereign. And I don't think Bitcoin powers their economy at all. Whereas these libertarians floating around where every man is an island thinking he's going to go up against the state with his Bitcoin. I mean, I, it sounds like a great story, um, but uh, I think that would be kind of the exception to the rule. So I guess my point is that, yeah, Bitcoin can definitely help that. I mean, it, it's already helped a lot of a lot of us now. But if we really want to get serious about that goal, you know, we should look at, you know, the Muslim communities, the Christian anarchist communities in the, in the United States in the 18th and 17th centuries. They were a- able to be semi-self-sovereign within the United States. And so do you see the kind of the people that come at this from a libertarian point of view? Do you, is, has your experience in interacting with them and observing them been that, you know, they are kind of, they shun community? Yeah, because, you know, as you know, the, the libertarian philosophy is, is very individualistic. And that's the starting point. And I think that's great for the law. You have to treat people as individuals under the law and, and rights come at the level of the individual. So that's the correct starting point. But that's just the first step. Um, in reality, if, if you look at history, when individuals really thrive and survive, it's when they're in a tribe or a, a community that is strong, united, and intolerant of outsiders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I my personal opinion on this is I believe that we should all be, to the extent possible, as independent and self-sovereign as possible. But then I think after doing that, or or in tandem with doing that, is you know creating a community of, of like-minded people engaging in a community of like-minded people. But I think the strength of that community is, is based on, or at least partially based on the degree to which no member is, is, you know, vulnerable or dependent on it. So it's a community of sovereign individuals interacting by choice. Um, but not because I, I, I haven't, I think, being dependent on anything is an issue. And that's not to say that we shouldn't engage in relationships, uh, you know, of, of, or shouldn't benefit from certain relationships or communities, et cetera, but just that we should do so as, uh, as on a, as free basis as possible. So that should the dynamic change, shouldn't, you know, that we would be able to, we would be okay. Should it, uh, something change in that dynamic because we are not wholly dependent on it. Yeah, so de- dependence is a tricky thing because you're always dependent on on something. I mean, just uh, you know, just for me to use my cell phone, I'm dependent on my cell phone carrier. So, it, it, yeah, dependent. Looking at what you depend on is important, and that's why you got to build interdependence on the right people. And talking about the Bitcoin community, which you know we say community because we don't quite have the right word. I mean, we know there's no true community because it's crypto anarchy. But if you just, if we take that concept, you know, Bitcoin community, whatever that means, the people you follow on Twitter, the people you talk to at conferences, the people you interview on podcasts, you know, if you, if you look at it that way, if you look at your local Bitcoin meetup group. So if we say that's the Bitcoin community, I would say that's extremely weak. 
the Bitcoin community is extremely weak compared to other communities. For example, um, Muslim communities in Europe or just Muslim communities in their home countries. Um, if you look at religious communities here in the U.S., they're much stronger than Bitcoin communities. I mean, look at perfect example. Okay, guns and Bitcoin. We sell hats and our Scorpion case and sticker packs and things. Well, 95% of Bitcoiners don't pay with Bitcoin. Now, we understand why, because everyone wants to keep their Bitcoin. But we're trying to create a circular economy for our community, and we can't even do that. And I'm guilty. Hey, when I buy stuff, it's it's rare that I pay in Bitcoin, and, and I am a hypocrite for that. But it's like, if, if we're going to power this community and we're not even using Bitcoin to power the Bitcoin community, we, I, I don't know. It's not but really do you, community. Do you think it's a timing issue? Like what it could it be the case that we're all biding our time. We're all, you know, strengthening our positions so that when the time comes to be more out there, to be more interactive with quote unquote community members to actually, uh, you know, to, to, launch let's say this circular economy do you it could it be a timing thing it's just not right now we're not, nobody feels that it's the right time but in 10 20 years perhaps it will be yeah that's tricky it's sort of a chicken and an egg problem so no one wants to start using their bitcoin to pay for everything yet at the same time we know we probably should try to do that more often so it's like okay once everyone's gonna you know use their bitcoin i will as well so it, that, that's the issue is, is it has to start, but no one wants to start it. I don't know if that's um, game does theory it, or not. But. Does it have to start though? Does it have to be, you know, do, does it have to start being used as, as a payment, a means of payment, means of exchange? Yeah, it absolutely does. Because we were talking about the state, right? And so, okay, how do you get away from the state? How do you live in such a way that they, you know, can't touch your Bitcoin or can't track what you're doing or, or can't collect taxes? Well, in, in that scenario, the way that would have to happen would be all your transactions are done with Bitcoin, because if they're done with dollars, obviously the bank can seize them. PayPal can cut you off, you know, all these things. And so in theory, if everything is done in Bitcoin, they don't know what's moving who from who into where. And they have a tough, a tough time seizing it because, you know, your private keys protect it. So, yeah, I think the truly the only way that Bitcoin can create uh, self-sovereign individuals as if you're Bitcoin 100%. Now, I know there's there's guys who are, but they're they're a tiny tiny fraction. Is it is it possible that, you know, many of us are just waiting for the various state monies to fail? So for, you know, just kind of accumulating what we would consider a better money, a harder money, sounder money, et cetera, et cetera, all the, all the attributes that we know. Um but we will continue to use state money in place of that until such time that the state money fails under the weight of its own abuses. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's what a lot of people are thinking. And that's sort of the hyper Bitcoinization idea that once that happens, then we'll just all switch over. But I'm not so sure that's really um, ever going to happen. And even if it does, I don't think it'll change that much. I mean, look, people can do it right now, right? Like, People could buy big guns and Bitcoin stuff with their Bitcoin and I can pay people in Bitcoin, you know, that I earned and it's like, okay, um, you know, ISP or, or cell phone provider, I can pay in Bitcoin, but it, it just, it just doesn't happen. And the other thing is, I don't think 
when people say, oh, fiat is going to collapse. Well, I mean, yes, but no. I mean, you know, look at Venezuela, but look at the rest of North and South America. Like Venezuela collapsed, but it's that's kind of a localized thing. And and these collapses are kind of temporary. Like the worst thing in a way was, you know, the the Russian when the Russian uh, when was this? When they defaulted on their debts. That's obviously terrible, but you know, it, it bounced back. And the financial crisis, yeah, they got bailed out, but you know, these these fiat crises, they're terrible, but they don't last for 10 years. Like they come back. Um, I mean, they're going to happen, but I don't think they are so bad that, oh, we have this financial crisis and Bitcoin ushers in and spreads like the tide. I just, I don't, I don't see that happen. Like, do you think, I don't think there's precedent for that. Which I agree. I don't think there is precedent, but I think that may be the argument. I think maybe that that is one of the, uh, you know, that's, that's what makes this special in that in previous times when the state money has failed, there's been no alternative. And as a result, you know, when everything got put back together again, you know, people had no choice but to just accept what, you know, the, the new version, as it were. Whereas I guess we're all wondering and hoping that this time there is an alternative available and it's an alternative that's, you know, fairly difficult to, to stop. It, it, certainly there are measures of control that can be enacted, but fairly difficult to stop. And I think what we're all hoping, and look, we, we, everyone in Bitcoin uh, kind of glorifies the, the failure of, of fiat money and the state. And I'm not in that camp as much as I'm fully aware of the negative consequences of the state controlling the money supply and, and monetary policy and all of that. The, the just the, the simple fact that it's so ingrained in, in so many different aspects of society and life today that a collapse of that nature would be just so incredibly disruptive on, you know, personally, societally, community, like it, 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 I'm really not, I really hope it doesn't happen in that way. Like what I'm hoping for is a slowly but surely transition. And this is what, you know, what I said a few minutes ago, you know, I think all Bitcoiners are just kind of getting prepared for a transition so that when the time comes, you know, that tr transition can be smoother because, you know, collapses are, as we know, you look at, you look at history, incredibly you know, tumultuous events, and they lead to a lot of follow-on things that nobody wants. And so I don't want to glorify the collapse, but it's hard not to look at things objectively and see the writing on the wall. And, and as, as you're saying, one scenario is everything goes to hell, but, you know, the state stays in control and they relaunch something and they say, it's going to be different this time and people actually buy it. Or maybe Bitcoin and will be out of a space then or just the fact that it even exists will make that harder to pass off in previous generations and times when private banks or state banks or you know that sort of thing failed then when they said listen new government trust us this time it's all going to work out we'll back it by gold for a period of time hint hint or, or whatever um and you, you know the people had no choice well okay um, what are we going to do we're not going to go back to barter but maybe this time it will be different because there will be at least an imperfect, if imperfect, alternative available for people to to engage in should that happen. And maybe that will change the dynamic of how, you know, things reemerge after that. 
Yeah. So basically, Bitcoin is insurance against that. So I, I agree with that thesis that when things go bad, that Bitcoin could be sort of, uh, you know, a lifeline that, that will stand up against other things. I think in a crisis, everything goes down. Right. But Bitcoin might go down a lot less. But maybe more importantly, I think your Bitcoin can't be seized in the way that your savings account can. To me, that's when I think of a financial crisis in Bitcoin, that's what I think of. See, you know, seizing people's wealth, emptying out their their bank accounts. Mm-hmm. That to me is what Bitcoin is about. Like if you look at Argentina and Venezuela, it's like, okay, both of those had um, several uh, fiat crises, right? But what happened with Bitcoin there? Well, for certain people, it really helped them. And, but they were the minority. So I think that's what happens in a crisis. Some people who have Bitcoin benefit, there's a huge arbitrage. Uh, their, their Bitcoin can't be seized like their credit cards and their, their bank accounts can. That's what it is. Not so much like, oh, now the economy runs on Bitcoin. Right, right. And so do you think, you know, you recently launched a podcast. Bravo, by the way. Congratulations. I, I listened to a few episodes in preparation for this. Do you think it's important then uh, to really kind of double down on education and awareness about this thing? Because l- like you said, Argentina, Venezuela, uh, Turkey, uh, Cyprus, Greece, like all, all these places where had there been a greater familiarity, a greater awareness with something like Bitcoin, perhaps it would have helped out more people. Now, the flip side of that is a lot of people are going to probably raise an eyebrow about, you know, taking their their cash from one system that's going to devalue it or confiscate it and put it into something that seemingly is equally volatile because of the way Bitcoin moves. But of course, if you zoom out a bit and look at things longer term, then, you know, even if you're not looking at from an investment perspective, it certainly does. It it certainly looks like a safer bet than than having someone confiscate it and, and, and you not being able to access it. But do you think education is really what's maybe lacking or what needs to be more of in this sort of space? I think education is, of course, important, and I don't think we lack education, really. I think we're just not focusing on being more practical. And to me, the most, I would say the biggest weakness right now is is how people buy Bitcoin, which is from exchanges. Mm -hmm. To me, if we could solve that, I mean, we solve so much and fortunately you have people working on it that are smart. The samurai wallet, Wasabi's making an attempt and then obviously at the protocol level. So there's very smart people working hard on the, the software part of that. And, and so instead of reading books about Bitcoin and, and going to conferences and this and that, which are all great, we just need to start our local Bitcoin meetup groups and attend them and do everything we can to support them. And when we go there, try to buy and sell $20 worth of Bitcoin to start forming relationships with people that you can do that. To me, that that's what it, we need is not, not necessarily more education, but like every single city needs to have a Bitcoin meetup group where people buy and sell Bitcoin from each other, even if it's five, $10, and then just let that grow. To me, that's that's what's really lacking. I think it's it's lacking so bad, and it's such a gaping hole in Bitcoin that um, 
hopefully that will change. And, and we're starting to see that. Like my local Bitcoin meetup group is awesome. It just started a few months ago, but they've already put on some great events. They have some ones planned in the future. They're already planning to do that, like getting together before the next one an hour early and just, hey, anyone who wants to buy and sell some Bitcoin, and it's more of a fun thing. It's not like big amounts. It's just to kind of do it. Um, and then I saw, and, and then I saw the Baltic honey badger. I think they set some time apart to do that. So hopefully this will start a trend and, and that's what Bitcoin really needs right now is just people in meat space that you can buy and sell Bitcoin from, or then, you know, meet digitally. Like maybe, you know, you and I are on this podcast and maybe one day I'll email you and say, Hey, I need a hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin, uh, you know, something like that. So really making, when we talk about Bitcoin being peer to peer, like it's not just like your node, like it's also who you buy, who you buy and sell Bitcoin from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do you think it's good or bad to have community members, podcasters, you know, people that are producing content of various forms kind of promoting or proselytizing for Bitcoin? Do you think it, it needs that? Do you think that's helpful or do you think it's, you know, or a hindrance? What do you think, feel about people kind of actively attempting to, um, foster adoption more quickly. I think it's fine, but the more people talk about one thing, the less they have to talk about another thing. So if let's say there's a a conference, like a two day conference Mm -hmm. and 90% of the time is spent talking about different things, but not getting people to trade Bitcoin with each other and not teaching people how to have good privacy practices, then that 90% probably shouldn't have been done. I mean, from my point of view, now, maybe a lot of people don't agree with me, but to me, that's the big gaping hole in in Bitcoin is that everyone buys Bitcoin on exchanges. And so, yes, these teaching education and proselytizing is good in theory, but the fact is, is most of that education and talking is, uh, taking the room and the space and energy away from what should actually be be doing which is which is you know what i said which was buying and selling bitcoin peer-to-peer with people that you know yeah so kind of you know really strengthening and disseminating best practices for the basics and not getting you know because i think all of us in the bitcoin space i you know i tweeted about this a few days ago and that we're all terrified of information asymmetry and what i meant by that is there's so much happening in the space so fast. The tech is evolving. There's products and services coming up all the time. And we all feel such an obligation to be uh, familiar, aware, educated on them. We don't want to seem like idiots. We want to, you know, we, we want to fully engage with this technology and this phenomenon. But as you said, you know, perhaps at conferences and podcasts and things like that, what gets lost, you know, we're all so much at the the tip of the spear on this thing at the, you know, at the forefront of the tech when, you know, perhaps 99% of people uh, really, you know, that's at this point irrelevant and it may always be, it might be one of those things that runs in the background and people never even are aware of, but the, the, you know, the privacy and the, the ability to have this insurance mechanism, as you mentioned, to acquire some and do so on a, on a, you know, on a secure and, uh, and private basis is is perhaps the most important part and maybe there should be more there should be more focus put toward that yeah absolutely and you know with guns and bitcoin we're trying to you know build a community and by that we just mean trying to bring people together in meet space 
or in some other way to actually interact as humans. And, and, you know, that could mean many things, but I come from things from a very paranoid point of view. I come from like the, what's the worst thing that can happen? Because I've had some bad things happen and I see, I've seen, you know, the result of that. And so with guns and Bitcoin, it's about what's the worst thing that could happen in preparing for that. And that involved guns and that involves Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So a good question to ask people is, when was the last time you were in a hurricane or an earthquake or a tornado or a tsunami or something or a war where there wasn't electricity, there wasn't water, or you couldn't go out of your house or whatever it might be? And okay, describe that. What was that like? How did you get food? How did you use money? Where did you get the money from? Like all these things. And when you, when you go through that exercise, then you realize, oh, shoot. I need to kind of like do some things. I got to put some cash in the side. I got to stock up on some food and water. Like I need to be on better terms with my brother-in-law because, you know, he's got all the first aid supplies. Like, like that's what I mean by community. If, if Bitcoiners are saying, ah, oh, you know, we're going to wait for this financial collapse and that's when Bitcoin's really going to take off. It's my insurance policy. Well, those worst case scenarios are really, really bad. And if those things happen, like, I don't think Coinbase is going to be accessible. Right. I mean, yeah. even if it is, you can't access it. So, so to me, I, I'm a very like paranoid person. And when I think of Bitcoin, I think of how does that help me when the state cracks down, when the state cracks down on it, when there's a hurricane or worst case scenario, because kind of otherwise we, you know, fiat works fine. PayPal works fine. Right. Yeah. And Perhaps I'll take this opportunity to swerve back to, to the gun issue. But I, I agree. And I, I tend to look at these things in terms of history and probability or, or, and the interplay, you know, the, the, the way in which history can inform your, your assessment of probability. And I think that's lost on a lot. You know, the status quo is such a, What's the word I'm looking for? You know, it's such a coddling sort of thing. It causes you to to forget the things of the past uh, so easily. And you know, you, you you brought up food. I mentioned this on a previous podcast, so I won't I won't go t into too much detail. But basically, I'm from an island in the North Atlantic um, called Newfoundland, right? So this in in winter time, there's there's often uh, winter storms and stuff that cut off the ships from coming in for several days at a time. This happens a couple, you know, at least once a winter, it seems. The grocery short shelves go empty. Most people have stuff in their freezer and their fridge, and you know people stock up before the store, storm comes. So it's it, it's not that big of an impact. But that's like that's something that happens normally. If there's ever something greater, you know, oil shock, war, bigger storm, stuff like that, the island produces almost no food. So you know, the half a million people that live there would be totally screwed. And um, you know, so I I took it upon myself just to assess that risk and say. Um, I think it's a worthwhile investment to put some money towards some dried food. Cost two grand, lasts for 25 years. I'm okay with that expense over that time period. Uh, and the probability of, of needing it over the, the 25 years, it's not zero. Maybe it's low, but in my mind, it wasn't zero. Uh, and for the peace of mind, I was willing to make that investment. And I think that a lot of people um, are failing to see the world through that lens. And the reason why, you know, I say let's swerve back to the, to the gun argument is because around the, the rhetoric on the side of the people that are anti-gun today um, is, ba you know, 
and I had this discussion with someone on Twitter. It's ongoing, actually. But it, it was basically like, um, I, I, I think it's best to have, you know, for the state to have a defensive army to protect their citizenry and the, you know, their country and their sovereignty, et cetera. But I don't believe citizens should have access to, to firearms. And, you know, my response was, well, sure, that in an ideal scenario, that, that would be great. But what happens if that state power apparatus falls into the wrong hands and gets directed towards you instead of towards an invading army? And there's never a good answer to that, to that question. You know, the, 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 there just isn't. And, you know, I think gun supporters would say, and, and, or sorry, the answer let me, let me rephrase that. The, the answer is, well, what are we going to do against tanks and nukes? And my response was, yeah, fair point. But at least millions of people having the ability to resist in some capacity provides a check or balance or puts up a fight should that scenario occur. And looking back through the 20th century, that scenario has occurred enough times that people should at least be... Uh, they should be aware that it's occurred enough times that it should cause them to to consider how they might respond. Yeah, I agree. And what you said was a, something about, I think, statistics or probability, something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the case. Like, what if you have, what worries you more, a 50% chance of breaking your arm and leg or a 1% chance of getting struck by lightning and dying? You know, it, to me, it's that 1% chance of, of lightning striking me. And so with, with what you said about the state and guns is absolutely correct that maybe in the recent past that hasn't happened. Like if you lived in say Norway, which is a generally pretty benign country, pretty benign government for them, maybe it's less likely, but if it does happen, you know, then what you're, you're at zero. So for me, guns and Bitcoin are, if nothing else, insurance against something terrible happening yeah at best at best it's a great tool that is fun and makes you rich but at the base <laughs> at, at, at the base level it's insurance right. you know it's insurance and so like you said why not have some whether it's bitcoin or whether it's it's guns why not right. just have some just in case and if you're wrong what's the worst thing that happens right right it's just i just find it's an incredibly concer- vulnerable we were talking about uh in in terms of community and being dependent on things and, and stuff like that you know, I just find it's an incredibly vulnerable and dependent position to be in by basically just saying, I hope things go well, because if they don't, I have no recourse. Like at some point, someone is going to take advantage of, of that attitude. And again, that's, that's been the case throughout history. Um, but I just, I want to, we're going to break into the, the rapid fire portion now in a sec, but I've never actually talked about my uh, stance on, on guns in the show, and I guess you're the, the best person to do it with, but I actually grew up um, on, the other, on the other side. I thought, why are assault weapons, quote unquote, assault weapons? I know there's a lot of misconceptions about the definition. Um, why are they allowed to be owned by people? Clearly, you know, this is contributing to a lot of these massacres that we've seen. Um, guns scare me. Um, you know, basically, I, I, I thought, yeah, it's it probably a good thing that, that, that people don't have them. I mean, that was where I was coming from. And so I, I've had to wonder why this shift has, has occurred in me, because I was always skeptical of, of the state. And I was always that kind of, 
you know, I was a bit of a conspiracy nut when I was a teenager and always talking about, you know, money and gold and this kind of stuff. Um, but now, you know, I've kind of transformed over the last, let's say, you know, 10 years. Um, guns still frighten me, to be honest. I haven't had enough experience with them. I've fired a couple of handguns, a couple of rifles, but, you know, they're, they're tools of extreme power and they, you know, it's life or death in your hands and i'm i'm i haven't spent enough time with them to be really comfortable with with that feeling um but i do recognize that again looking at probabilities and looking at history that much as they they may enable the expression of negative behavior you know of of behavior in society that we would deem negative i.e you know yes some of these you know, shootings will occur if people have guns. But one, as you said earlier, what's the real cause of why people decide to kill, you know, 20 people in their school? The gun didn't cause them to want to do that. And so we should be looking at the things in society that are causing that sort of behavior to to bubble up. Um, and two, you know, back to the argument we've just been discussing, it seems like it, it, it's a too vulnerable a position to to just say, just cross your fingers and, and hope things go well. So I think, as you mentioned, growing up with you know uh, you know a father figure, grandfather figure, strong mother, strong grandmother, whatever it is that's able to kind of instill in you the great responsibility uh, and maturity that's required to wield a tool of such power. Um, and and understand why it's important to be able to have the ability to defend and protect yourself and your family and your community. Yeah, having that father figure to teach you that is important. But just, you know, having a father means you're not fucked up. When you don't have a father, you are fucked up. And that leads to all sorts of problems that some legislation is never going to solve. Yeah. I do think, you know, in society today, I like to look at traditional I mean, I'm a, I love history. Um, and, you know, lots of traditional societies had rites of passage uh, for for young boys and in, in, in cases, young girls as well, usually in different capacities. But, you know, whether it's 13, 16, 12, you know, when, whenever it occurred, but it was kind of this this process of of making young people realize the the responsibility that they would have to bear in emerging into the real world as an adult and all the different things that that entailed. And these rites of passage would kind of like inform them like, okay, now's the time. And these are the lessons that you, you need to try to integrate. And I feel like, you know, I think having a father figure is kind of that because it, you know, it, it, it gives you an example to, to try to pursue. And obviously there's lots of, you know, wisdom transferred both directly and indirectly. But I think, you know, in, in, in society today, we've lost that. And if anything, we're, you know, people are kept in a juvenile, people are treated in such a juvenile manner, like far into their adulthood. I mean, that's one of the issues with, with media today is that everyone is treated like such a goddamn child. And, you know, as a result, we, we have a, we have a society that's full of, of immature behavior. Yeah, you could do a whole episode on the topic of fatherhood and families and just just you know being a male in today's society and and how it's gotten so messed up. I mean yeah. that's 
that could be a whole podcast series. <laughs> I, I think absolutely. Well, you should you should work on it on yours. All right, Ragnar. I mean, I, I'm really enjoying this discussion, but uh, I want to be respectful of your time. The last thing uh, I wanted to break into, though, because it is such a disruptive idea, concept, and phenomenon that's happening simultaneously, is the 3D printing thing, right? Because again, in 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 the past, we were talking about how you know, kind of government would would if they confiscated your guns then you're kind of shit out of luck right same same with money if they just said well we're going to start over with a new money you had to kind of accept it now because of this technology the, the the power to create you know defensive tools guns in individually is is now here people can basically 3d print guns and as we move forward over the next decade obviously it's going to become easier and easier how i mean what does that mean to you, and how do you think it's changing this dynamic of state power, gun ownership, the gun debate, all of that? Like, what is it? What's your take on it? Well, with three D printed guns, I see a parallel with Bitcoin, which is it's a way to get around um, certain things that the state does. So, and they're both legal. So this is what's interesting. Like, Bitcoin is legal but it lets you get, ar- get around these financial restrictions. And 3D printed guns are legal, and they let you get around these restrictions of needing a background check. So for those who don't know, in the US, when you go to buy a gun, they do a quick background check on you. And the guns that you buy are registered. There's a registration number on each gun, and that's connected to your name. And that's how they know what guns you have. And that's how they prevent people from buying guns. With 3D printed guns, it's legal to make your own own gun at home. You can't sell it unless you're a firearms dealer, but you can make your own, you can make your own gun for yourself. And in at least, I think, 48 states, you then don't need to put a serial number on that gun. You can just make it, no serial number, and you don't need to report it. I think California and maybe one or two other states, that's, that's different. But the point is that 3D printing technology is is going around these restrictions that say when you buy a gun, it has to be serialized because you're not buying a gun at all, right? Whereas Bitcoin, it's like there is no bank. So we don't need to talk about banking rules because there is no bank. Bitcoin is your bank. So I see a major parallel between 3D printed guns and Bitcoin. It's a self-defensive measure. It's a way that technology has... Um, you know, got around the state in certain ways while still being in this legal area that is actually a nice, nice, uh, nice area to be in. And it's still the early days with 3D printed guns. We're going to do a lot of podcasts on 3D printed guns at Guns and Bitcoin, but it's definitely going to obsolete certain regulations through technology. Right. And one of the arguments that I think has been invoked for, can't remember that you probably know the name of the company, uh, Decentral something. Defense De- Distributed. Yeah. Defense Distributed. Yes. Yeah. I think that one of the arguments that they tried to invoke, I'm not too familiar with, with the, the case, but was that, you know, they shouldn't be subject to, you know, punishment of any kind because they or maybe they shifted to this, but you know, basically, code is speech, right? And if you're you, as a result, are there protections uh, for free speech? Are the protections for for free speech the the same 
should they be applied to code? Because, you know, code is a form of language. And if you're just disseminating code, you're just speaking freely. And whatever anybody does with that is, is you know, none of your business. Yeah, that's the argument that code is speech. And this isn't anything new, of course. I mean, um, back when we were dealing with encryption, Adam Back actually, um, you know, Adam Back of Blockstream and, and Hashcash, he printed, uh, you know, code on a T-shirt and which was supposed to be like, this is munitions, but here he goes and he prints it on a t-shirt. Are you going to take my t-shirt away? No, of course not. So yeah, code is speech. And that's a question of Bitcoin as well. Yeah. It's a question with 3D printed guns. You're right. That is the argument that, that Defense Distributed made was, well, wait, this is just speech. And the State Department was saying, no, this is under the Munitions Act. In other words, it's a weapon. Like the State Department controls weapons. You can't just come up with a, a plan for a, a nuclear bomb and then just publish it. That's a munition. And so that's what they were trying to say with the 3D printed gun files. They were saying it's it's a weapon. And the argument actually went out was, no, this is speech. It's it's not a munition. So that's the big debate with 3D printed guns. Is it speech? And if so, is it protected? Yeah. And like you said, the same with Bitcoin, right? Because if, it, if, if a ban ever comes down or regulations or what have you, it's like, well, at core, is it not just language? Is it not just code? Is it, is, is it not just speech? And should it be treated differently? Yeah. And in a way, you have to be prepared for them saying it's not speech or it is speech, but it's not protected. And if they do that, well, what are you going to do about it? You know, so it's like if you have your Bitcoin, did you secure it in the best way that you can? Um, are you familiar with 3D printed guns? Do you know how it works? Do you know where you could learn about it? You know, have you made some yourself? Like you kind of just have to be prepared for, again, being paranoid. Yeah, You have to be prepared for the worst case scenario. And, you know, I think this issue is going to keep popping up because, you know, in my opinion, and I, I think probably in the opinion of many others, is that we are, we are moving ever further into a digital age, a digital reality. Now, whether that culminates in us existing, you know, plugging into the matrix and being there full time or spending part of our time there, but the kind of the window into the digital from the TV to the computer to the cell phone to the, you know, the contact lens is, is creeping ever closer and, and we're spending ever more time in there. And as a result, all of these things that used to be manifestations of the physical world, guns and money and et cetera, are now going to be converted into uh, you know, replicas or, or manifestations in the digital world. And in the digital world, everything is code. Everything is language. Everything is speech. So how will regulation adjust to not just guns and money, but we're going to this we're going to be uh, confronting this issue on everything because as a more complete reality begins to emerge in a digital form and we continue to engage in it more this you know we're going to keep bumping up against this issue yeah it's all about it's all about speech and you know what we say at guns and bitcoin is that the we're in a cyberpunk dystopia and that's what it is where you have the convergence of the physical and the digital worlds. So guns, is it physical? Yeah, it's, it's rifles and, and triggers that are metal and plastic, but it's also digital now with 3D gun printing. What about Bitcoin? Is that is that physical? Well, sure, money's physical. You buy stuff with it, but it's actually just you know, code. And so that's the dystopia that we're moving towards, physical and digital becoming one, massive surveillance corporations merging with the state or they're kind of indistinguishable so all the things we've talked about are defenses asymmetric defenses against all that whether it's guns or bitcoin yeah totally agree 
Ragnar, that's uh, that's all I got for you, man. Uh, that was thoroughly enjoyable. I wish uh, I'm sure we could speak for a lot longer. Maybe someday, if we're face to face, we'll 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 do that. Is there anything uh, you wanted to mention that we didn't cover and or you know throw out some destinations? No, I think we covered a lot of ground. It was fun talking to you. You could we could definitely go on. Maybe we will from the same geographical location. But no, just uh, you know, if you include my website, that's about it. All I need and. I think we covered a lot of ground, though. Sure. So, yeah. No. I, I like I said. Uh, this is something that I've been wanting to talk about for a long time. Um, you know, most people aren't as equipped as you or as engaged in in this subject matter to actually have that discussion. Um, so, yeah. I, and and obviously, it's it's a big discussion happening both in the quote unquote Bitcoin community and the broader uh, community today. So, uh, thank you very much for coming on and and being open and, and having that discussion with me. So your website is guns and guns and, and bitcoin.com? Yeah. yeah, guns, the letter N, Bitcoin, just like guns and roses, it's gunsandbitcoin.com. Right. And then on Twitter, what are the two handles Same for thing. you and them? So guns and bitcoin. Yes. Yeah. So at guns and bitcoin. And then uh, for me it's Ragnarly, R-A-G-N-A-R-L-Y. Sweet. All right, man. Well look, uh, again, really appreciate it, really enjoyed it, and uh, hopefully whether it's in person or maybe in, in six to 12 months when, you know, time passes so fast in this space, I'm sure you guys will be in a much different spot and probably me as well. So it'd be, be fun to catch up uh, in the future sometime and just, you know, keep talking about some of these uh, interesting concepts. Yeah. And thanks for talking about guns. I know it's a kind of a controversial topic, but now that, you know, with guns and Bitcoin, more and more people are kind of coming out of the woodwork and, and sharing, you know, their diverse thoughts. So it's, it's been a good thing. I, I like to see this because in Bitcoin, there's a lot of smart people, I think, and, and just like really good people. So it's nice when, um, you know, people that you, you know, we have things in common with, you know, think similarly. I know with guns, you, you have similar views, probably some things are different, but we both, I think are on the same page with most of things. So it's, it's nice to hear. So thanks for, thanks for taking the risk of, of talking about it, I guess. <laughs> well, man, I think I, I'm excited for your podcast because I, I do think that this is a subject for those reasons that just, it needs a lot more sensible, rational, logical dialogue because so much of the rhetoric is sensational. Uh, and it, you know, it's, it's easy to understand why, because there's a lot of things, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of fucked up things that happen in the world. But I just think on this issue in particular, the more voices that are coming at it from with logic and reason um, and taking the emotion out of it, um, the better. So if you're going to be doing that, or you are going to be doing that with the podcast. So I, I wish you well in that. And, uh, and yeah, I, in, in all future endeavors as well. So we'll talk again in the future. Thanks. I appreciate it. And I'll look forward to the podcast coming out. I'll definitely uh, share it around. Awesome. All right, brother. Take care of yourself. All right. All right. Thanks, John. Cheers. Bye-bye.